0: Hello, and welcome back to AI Ideas with Graham Culbertson, the podcast that does philosophy of AI halfway between poetry and mathematics. This episode marks a new era in the podcast. I have done my first interview, in this case with Joshua Glenn, the editor of the MIT press series Radium Age. A series of science fiction works from the first chunk of, of the 20th century. We're gonna discuss the series today with Josh, as well as E.M. Forster's story of proto-AI, The Machine Stops. After this, I'll try and have one interview per month, in addition to the Bits and Bytes episodes and whatever else I come up with. I'm now also going to ask you to help grow the show. If you're enjoying AI ideas, please leave a five-star review on Apple podcasts or Spotify share it on social media tell a friend anything you can to spread the word <laughs> as you will hear when you listen to the machine stops it does seem that uh, the algorithm is one of the most powerful things for determining the success of a podcast or a lecture as they are called in the machine stops So five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts probably does more than anything else to help the show grow. If you could take a moment to uh, feed my podcast into the machine a little bit, I would really appreciate it. And now, here's the interview with Joshua Glenn about the radium age of science fiction and E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. To a. Ideas. This is my very first interview on this podcast, and I'm joined today by Joshua Glynn, the editor of Voices from the Radium Age, which is a new, frankly, amazing series of science fiction books. So, Joshua, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and this project?
1: Sure, and thank you so much. I'm, I'm pleased and honored to be your first interview on this podcast. I know, I know not your first interview ever, but for this podcast. Yes, so uh, the radium age is my term, and I, I came up with this over ten years ago now when I was writing for the website io9.com, uh, and I became interested in science fiction from the period, at, sort of after uh, you know H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. Although the Wells, of course, kept writing for many years, but after his great you know early prolific period in the nineteenth century, sort of after the Food of the Gods, really um, in 1904. Five or four whenever that was so from that period until the golden age which most people agree begins in sort of the mid to late 1930s when john campbell you know and started uh, discovering and publishing isaac asimov and all these people there's this huge chunk of 30 35 years of science fiction history that we don't really know much about um, except that that, except what we've learned about from the golden age folks who kind of poo-pooed it so like Isaac Asimov edited a series in the 70s called Before the Golden Age, where he picked out his favorite stories from pulp magazines, but basically said everything else was kind of junk. You know, it was just kind of silly, overly utopian. You know, um, there was something about it that the Golden Age people didn't like. They're the ones who named it the Golden Age of science fiction at the time. It wasn't <laughs> something that came later. So they were, it was kind of propaganda on their part to say that we're the Golden Age and what came before us wasn't as good. And yeah, I love the Golden Age science fiction and they were very good writers. But as I started digging into this period, I realized, oh, there's actually a lot of really good, really interesting, strange, what I call proto-science fiction writing from this period. And I call it proto-science fiction just because the term wasn't invented until sort of the mid 1920s by Hugo Gernsback. So so people writing from in 1905, 1915 or 1920 didn't think of what they were doing as writing science fiction. So it feels weird to call it science fiction. So I'm, I'm kind of, um, it's, it's, it's after the scientific romance phase so I call it proto-science fiction. Anyway, long story short, 10, 12 years later after I wrote all this stuff and I, put, and I reissued some of the books on my own dime, the MIT press approached me and asked if I wanted to edit a series for them of reissuing sci- these science fiction stories and novels from this period. And I said, yes, and we worked on it for a couple of years. And my friend Seth, uh, the cartoonist, did these amazing covers. And now, as of um, March of this year, we have um, I think six titles out, and a seventh one coming in October. And then we're going to do you know four or five more a year from going forward. So we're gonna it's gonna be a nice long run of reissued science fiction.
0: That's that's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, I will admit, I'm not as big of a fan um, of of the golden age. I mean, I sort of am with you know very famously. The, the genius Stanislaw Lim dismissed the vast majority of that stuff as, you know, I don't know what he called it, like infantile or something like that. I wouldn't go that far, but as a as a rule, I don't necessarily love that era of writing. I mean, Isaac Asimov may be my least favorite science fiction writer, which is uh, puts me in a weird position.
1: I don't like him either. I'm yeah. glad you said that. I, when I I did a I did a list for io9 many years ago of sort of like the hundred best science fiction novels of all time, and there was no Isaac Asimov yeah. on the list. People were outraged. Scandalous. But <laughs> it's, not, it's not fun to read. They're not good adventures. It's all two white guys talking to each other yeah. for 250 pages.
0: They. Um... The the text that we're going to get to in a little bit, the machine stops from Ian Forster. The the people in it are obsessed with ideas. They're kind of like all academics. It's a world in which everyone is a lecturer. I can't tell that Isaac Asimov actually had ideas, even though he purports to have been a sort of idea machine. I can't find. uh, I find neither art nor knowledge in his fiction. (laughs)
1: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well can I say one more thing about the difference between the golden age and the radium age which I'm I'm still discovering all this as I do my research and my reading but and I began all this as a reader I'm not a you know I'm not a professor of any of, of history of science fiction or anything I just am a fan of science fiction who began reading deeply in this territory that no one else was reading in but um it's I read a fascinating article recently where somebody crunched the numbers and they discovered that there was fewer women writing for science fiction magazines during the golden age and during the radium age so there really was some kind of gatekeeping started going on with john campbell and these guys and they're really driving out what they saw as like pernicious influences on science fiction and they obviously saw those influences as probably coming from women but they wanted to drive out sort of the romance thread of science fiction and the horror you know the horror thread and the the occult thread and all these this kind of um, amazing brew of uh, outre, para literary genres that science fiction grew out of. I mean, science fiction was always a hybrid from the beginning, but they wanted to then kind of put some guardrails around it and say, our genre is about science and it's about technology and it's about predicting the future. And it's not about all this other stuff. Even though by that point it was too late to close the door on things like telepathy. You know what I mean? Like that's not from occult literature that has nothing to do with science at all, right? Or the future. That's never going to happen. No matter how much we mutate, we will never be telepaths. But it snuck in from occult literature just because a lot of things were sneaking in from all over the place in the early days. So um interesting that in a weird way, they they what they did was smart from a PR perspective because they, by solidifying the boundaries and making it more quote unquote respectable or whatever, they made it mainstream. It broke through, you know, in the 50s. But um it was at a cost. There's a lot of fun, interesting weirdness from the early days that it wouldn't come back in until, you know, the far out 60s and 70s, thanks to people like Lem.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, you hit so many of the things I was going to say, so that's awesome, so I don't have to say it. Um, I will say, I mean, it's not just that they made it mainstream, because they also put it in a sort of genre ghetto. This was Philip K. Dick's big complaint is that Mm -hmm. he would never be considered an author. He would always be considered a science fiction writer. And that that has so many things to do with the 20th century and the way authorship got professionalized and publishing became more branded. And so while it was, it made, it created this thing really called science fiction, as you say, and it was very successful and also incredibly unsuccessful. To the point, if you get someone later, I mean, this is the kind of thing that people can't understand if they don't know the history. You get someone like Mm -hmm. Ursula K. Le Guin, one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time. And she doesn't want to be called a science fiction writer. And that's because people, um, radium age people also would not have been called science fiction writer. It's a category that gets defined by these, as you say, somewhat technocratic golden age men And who would want to be associated with that category unless you (laughs) want to put yourself, unless you want to be part of the club, which obviously neither Lim nor Le Guin wanted to be members of that, you know, exclusive and yet also kind of literarily crummy club.
1: Yeah. Kurt Vonnegut, too, famously was never comfortable with being called a science fiction writer.
0: Yeah, again, and these are these people are great writers who write clearly science fiction but precisely what what we've already talked about with what happened the professionalization from the radium age to the golden age you know it it, it was great for selling these um yeah. paperbacks and for selling these magazines and anthologies it was very bad for both the pr- wider prestige of the genre and in, as you say it it made the genre very exclusive and quite narrow
1: yeah and i think a lot of people who are um you know, today are very talented, you know, non, are, uh, realistic, so quote unquote, because that's obviously no such thing as total realism, but realistic novelists, a lot of them would never consider writing science fiction today. I think that's loosening up a bit now, but for many, many years, if you wanted to make it as a serious novelist and be in the New York Review books, you would not dabble in science fiction. And um, that's, that's changing somewhat now. But one of the fun things about going back to the reading major is realizing that, oh, like... Jack London wrote science fiction, and you know, Ian Forster, you know what I mean, who wrote *Howard's End* and all uh, these amazing, um, you know, important um, novels of social class and so forth, dabbled in science fiction. And, and again, it's partly because, yeah, like there wasn't it wasn't really a ghetto then. It was just another thing you could try your hand at. It didn't have a name, um, you know. People would publish it.
0: Absolutely. So that was, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the radium age and kind of the prehistory of science fiction, but that was my point uh, about Ian e. Forster. The the story that we're going to talk about when we get to it, The Machine Stop, is written by Ian e. Forster, who wrote, yes, Howard's End. I mean, it, it's hard to get more prestigious in the literary world, more high class than Ian e. Forster. If he had been writing 30 years later, he either would not have written this story or he would have had to give interviews in which he made clear that he was quote not a science fiction writer it's only in this fun messy time that w.e.b du bois probably the greatest sociologist in the history of america could write fantasy or science fiction this this radium age is so fun and messy and you're absolutely right that we we have not appreciated it enough
1: yeah, and again, I think that's really largely due to these guys crapping on it in the thirties, forties, <laughs> and fifties as part of their own propaganda for what they were doing. There's also a political element which we didn't touch on at all, which is that the 19 teens and 20s and 30s were very utopian time. People believed that as as young people today say, another world was is possible. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, they they socialism was not a bad dirty word, and you know, socialist candidate for president could almost make it. You know, and so I think that. Part of what was happening with the golden age was they were saying let's let's put the lid on this utopianism that stuff feels very adolescent it feels too idealistic we know you know because of what's happened in russia and in germany that you know it's really a dangerous idea to to try to radically transform the social order so let's just you know shove all that into the closet of science fiction and never talk about it again and be real we'll just be really realistic and pragmatic about what can and can't happen from now yeah on. and
0: in and, insofar as progress is possible, it's really narrow technological yeah.
1: progress. Yeah, so engineers get... will fix everything, which is what we still believe, right? That's <laughs> what Google and Apple and everyone yeah. tell us. Too.
0: I agree. The Golden Age is so much more amenable to the techno utopians than when you get something like Asimov's Foundation trilogy, which is basically the idea that society is going to collapse. but don't worry, engineers will will fix it engineers and commerce will fix it and that is not that's that's not what i'm looking for right now (laughs) in 2022 yeah (laughs) um i guess the last thing i wanted to make sure we covered before we we get to um the machine stops is the the tradition You, you can take it back to john milton if you want to i mean he comes up over and over again especially for Mary Shelley but you can you know take it back to the bible and all of the creation myths there is a there is a way in which all fiction until like 19th century realism is is science fiction or fantasy and in fact this idea of this barrier between mm-hmm. you know uh, famously what they called the probable as opposed to the possible or the fantastical that barrier is actually a product of the 19th century Mm -hmm. and you've got you know fairy queens and that sort of thing and and witches and even in something like Herman Melville the the whale Moby Dick does not seem to be completely uh of this world the boundary like so like magical realism has to get invented in the 20th century And that would be a confusing thing for someone in the 18th century magical realism was the only sort of realism that they had and so one way is to read um this this these golden age people as like yeah the inheritors of the realist tradition at a time that um you know whatever you want to call it the literary fiction writers of that same era had given up on this belief that there was something called the real world that was stable, concrete, bourgeois bureaucratic if that if that makes sense yeah,
1: very interesting uh, just as a footnote to that i you know I read a lot of adventure novels in general i I spent the last six or seven or eight years trying to read my way through the best to figure out what the to my mind were the best one thousand adventure novels of the twentieth century and read them all, and <laughs> You, a lot of uh, sort of crime novels and adventure novels and espionage novels and things in the 20s and 30s are very weird. And, you yeah. know, like John Vulcan novels, there's a lot of like sort of telepathy like things happening and hypnotism. And, you know, it's it, you're right that uh, that all that stuff doesn't get kind of winnowed out until pretty late into the 20th century.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle is incredibly important in this in this respect. Um, And, you know, one of the one of the dominant intellectuals of this period, the American philosopher and psychologist William James, Mm -hmm. he was obsessed with all that stuff. And he, you know, James, to his credit, was a very exacting scientist, kind of kind of like Houdini in that respect, in that he was investigating it. And James really wanted to find it, and due to his exacting scientific nature, he never could find telepathy. In fact, he disproved lots of things. But boy, yeah. was he just interested in a more interesting world, and thought there was no reason why you couldn't study that stuff and and learn about We're it.
1: fascinated by James, and I've just been revisiting him recently, actually. And his father was a Swedenborgian yes. philosopher, <laughs> right? So, which yes. you know about more more about than I do, I'm sure, but. He, you know, sort of believed in sort of neoplatonic idea of, of a world of ideal forms <clears throat> underlying, you know, that was the real underlying this illusory world that we live in that our senses are able to access. But beneath it all, there's kind of these true forms. And James was sort of trying to, you know, he knew that his father wasn't totally right, but he also was sort of honoring that tradition in his own work as trying to be as scientific as possible. And that's really what theosophy was too, was trying to be as scientific as possible about, this idea that there's a kind of a, a, a true world out there that we can't access through our senses.
0: Yeah, that is one of the ways of understanding James, and I don't think it's a bad one, is that his entire project was to, not to prove that his father was right, or, or if he did, he, he failed to do that, but yeah. to make room for his father's beliefs in in the world so that you could no longer dismiss that. And of course, if you dismiss the people who believe in Various forms of magic or various realities beyond our own—you—you you dismiss almost almost all of humanity, which is why I think yeah. um, what used yeah. to be called the new atheism, the Dawkins, Dennett, Harris atheism, has become be, rapidly ascended and then rapidly descended when they realized that those again were a group of of straight white men who wanted to shit on literally everyone else. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, yeah, did, yeah you know, believe exactly what they believed in. James had such a more open view of the universe, one that we might want to call is silly in some ways, but so much more open. And this fiction of the same era, the radio made open in that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was a religion major in college, although I am not a religious person, but I'm fascinated by religion and sort of respectful of, you know, the ideas and the traditions and the texts and so forth. And I, um, why am I bringing it up? Oh, James, I always admired. That's where I first discovered James was through that, through my my coursework in college. But what I liked about him was that he wasn't saying, you know, um, mystical experiences are true necessarily, but he's saying, but they're not, we don't know if they're true or not. And So let's just look at them carefully as scientists. Let's spend more time thinking about them instead of just missing them out of hand. And I think that's that's the right way to be a scientist, yeah, and then
0: mystical, you know, he quickly concluded that mystical experiences were true for the people experiencing the mystical experiences. And at some point he says, "You know you're making a big mistake if you want to say, you know, objective reality does not cohere with these mystical experiences. If someone has a mystical experience and then spends the rest of their life following a set of religious practices and beliefs. James would say, "What? What more proof do you want that mystical experiences are real? Mm-hmm. Look, it changed, like mm-hmm. this. This changed everything for this person, and this person is changing the world. And that's a that's a vision of faith that both the like hard headed scientists and the like soft hearted true believers both have not have not liked very much because it's kind of yeah. messy and in the middle.
1: Well, do, yeah. So that messy middle place is something that completely fascinates me, and I think basically where I live as well, in my own way." not in the 1915 way, I guess, but (laughs) I find Doyle really fascinating. And, um, you know, even before he sort of comes out as a spiritualist, just for decades, he's exploring that boundary. And he's sort of pushing back against positivist science as a man of science, as a doctor, but he's sort of saying, um, you know, science should be, um, you know, open-minded and, and allowing, you know, he has, he has a science fiction character, Professor Challenger, say something to the effect that, you know, the truly wise man is one who's, you know, kind of believes anything, anything could happen in the universe. Um, and there's something really, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I think his sort of venture into spiritualism and believing in fairies was unfortunate in some ways and, and wrong <laughs> in some ways, but his general idea that, you know, positivist science is the only form of good form of science is, was right on
0: yeah i'm with i'm i'm with that is there and it's sort of like you know i mean look i kind of wish james joyce hadn't written finnegan's wake but Mm. if he wasn't the kind of person who was going to go and eventually write finnegan's wake he never would have written ulysses and it's like yeah Uh, eventually eventually doyle went and believed in fairies and you know and james had some james really did seem to believe in esp although he was very good at disproving it but if you weren't if you weren't the kind of person who was open to that neither of them would have would have done what they did. If I like that. that yeah, that I like that way
1: of putting it. Doyle, um, I I just came across a book of his some years ago, and I've used bookstore that was not 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 part of any of his series. It's just about a young doctor, probably sort of semi autobiographical, of a young Scottish doctor starting out his practice. But the whole book is just an argument about trying to find a place for religion, religious faith within science, and um, it's this young doctor wrestling with that yeah. and. It's a, it's a great, interesting book. I mean, he's he's such a powerful, entertaining, funny, smart writer that um, I find it very um, seductive. All his you know even the weirder ideas of his that he expresses.
0: Okay, so what I want to say now is, and this will this will bring us up to Forster. Is my my idea behind this podcast is to think about AI in the ways that people might not be thinking about. AI And the first obvious one, and I would say this happens in the machine stuff, but it's inverted, is is the religious one in that this is where John Milton comes in. Um, What we are doing if we are trying to create what is often called general AI or AGI or or true AI, which is AI that passes the Turing test, AI that acts and behaves in some ways like a human being is we, we are doing what had been, you know, up until the 19th century, Considered playing God. And that's why mm-hmm. when Shelley, when Mary Shelley creates, you know, what is in many ways the first science fiction story, she's actually telling a really, really, really old story, which is humankind taking the place of God and creating life when it shouldn't, or doing yeah. something that's against the moral order of the things, which is why it's called the modern Prometheus. So this goes back to John Milton. This goes back to the Bible. This goes back to Greek myths, all of this stuff. The thing that Shelley does that's different is create a somewhat scientific explanation, as in it's not magical. It is supposedly scientific. And there's some interesting things about electricity and chemistry in there. So in that respect, you could almost, I mean, I want to make science fiction sort of a subset of mythological literature. That's what it is, at least from this respect. It's a set of parables about what it is to be human and what it might mean, at least for AI, to create something that is non-human and yet alive or a person or something along those lines.
1: I like it. And it is, um, it's very uncanny to use a word that we need to be, I'm sure you, you probably talk about it every time on your podcast, but yeah. it's absolutely, um, I've been playing a lot with um, mid journey um, for the last couple of weeks. I find it very addictive uh, the uh, generating artworks and um, yeah, there's something about advanced web search engines and recommendation engines and intelligence, uh, intelligent assistance with, natural language user interfaces like Siri, all these things that I use all the time that I found, you know, both incredibly exciting and useful and um, interesting, but also kind of frightening. And um, and I think that's what's so brilliant about Shelley's novel. I mean, that novel re- rewards endless rereading. Oh, so, with so much. much going. It's a slim book, but there's so much happening in it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, an episode that I keep trying to to draft And haven't actually published is about you know the 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 uncanny and like the the reason why that you know what is now called i don't even know how to pronounce it crayon but AI is in the middle of crayon or or what what used to be called dolly mini and dolly these these are surrealistic things but if you go back and read breton and some of the other surrealists they're saying actually what we're doing is is real this is how the human mind works the human mind makes all these weird frankly, uncanny connections. And what is called realist art is, is really the lie. So when people say things like, oh, you know, you have to make AI that works the way the human mind works and the human mind knows that kittens don't actually have eight legs. It's like exactly the opposite. Like every human being has imagined a kitten with eight legs and precisely how the human mind works is creating these things that are unreal. And then we, we train our children to stop thinking that way and we've got yeah. these new children these new ai children and they're thinking the way that humans think and we're we're trying to discipline
1: and punish them
0: the way we yeah. do with children
1: yeah yeah well it goes back to james and others who are really fascinated by these kind of filters on our consciousness that you know that is what humans are really good at is filtering out the real and finding having an algorithm that learns and you know can. Um, can uh, iteratively improve itself so that it, you know, you can get by and fit in and get through your life in an efficient way. But you do that by stopping seeing everything and you no longer perceive reality as it really is. Exactly. And we are, we are desperate, probably
0: wisely desperate to get AI that sees the world the way we do, because mm-hmm. as long as we're going to give AI lots of power, it would be very yeah. dangerous yeah. if it doesn't see the world
1: we do. Um,
0: which brings us to the machine stops, I think. Unless you, okay, unless you want to say yeah. something.
1: No, no. I mean, I could talk about this forever, but yeah, let's talk about the machine stops. And so, are we gonna do a second uh talk one of these days where we talk about other um AI stuff from this from this era? Because I've been I, doing I, some I mean, research. You forced me to do one, some research. I have more ideas. Yeah, that's I mean that sounds that sounds great. Sure.
0: I don't know, I don't know when that's gonna be, but I've yes, sure. ag- agreed. Um Okay. So uh, the machine stops. Um, let me briefly describe it for the readers who haven't read it. Although I would say, I mean, I mean, read it. I highly recommend reading it. You can pick up. The yeah, book. it's really a
1: long short story, or a long story, or a short novella. It's not. It's not a lot to read.
0: It's not that long. It's in this book, Voices from the Radium Age, edited and introduced by Joshua Glenn, which you know I will have a link to uh, in the show notes. Um, I assume it's also online. I mean, it is in the public domain.
1: Oh, yeah, it's um, in the public domain.
0: It is a story, and I taught this story, Josh, in a class on AI and science fiction uh, during the height of the pandemic. That was that was taught on Zoom, and it just blew wow. the students' minds because it is a story yeah. about a world in which humanity is so advanced that everything is run by machines. And as I as I mentioned, I think earlier, they're pretty much all just intellectuals. They all call themselves lecturers. There's no there's no people anymore. There's no workers, there's just lecturers. And they just sit in rooms and stare at each other's faces and talk about ideas. And so I gave this to these students who had been on Zoom for the past six months and they were just like, how did Ian Forster know what it would be like? It was uncanny to to use that word again. Uh, You know, I
1: chose this story before the pandemic to be in this series. (laughs) I was interested in it for everything else about the story that's so amazing. But yeah, once the pandemic happened, you're like, oh my god, this is all like she—he's predicting TED talks and yeah. you know YouTube uh, influencers, and uh, it's really quite impressive and amazing. And and the idea he talks at one point about how the mother and um, Vashti has um, like you know thousands of friends, and he in yeah. you know, very dry British humor which I don't think it even reads as humor to most of us these days. He says, you know, in certain respects, you know, human civilization had advanced considerably or something. And so like he's basically saying it's not great to have a thousand virtual friends. You know, you should just have, have a few real friends. It seems better.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's one point where it mentions that Vashti requests um, euthanasia after a lecture doesn't go well, which again <laughs> could, could seem just like uh, ridiculous and over the top, but obviously people who have bad experiences on social media do commit suicide yeah. like yeah, that yeah. that that's a that yeah. is a thing that happens the pain of talking into a screen with no one else to rely on yeah. and having the people on the other end of the screen or in the wider community fill you know filled with scorn and derision against you people do take their lives over that yeah Forster. yeah yeah
1: you don't get enough likes or he doesn't get into the idea of trolls but yeah uh, just the idea that if you don't get you know it's such a fragile ecosystem. Your all, all you, your self-esteem is entirely predicated on people on the other end of the screen to giving you a thumbs up. You know, for your dumb lecture. That the most part, part of what's so funny about all this too is that they have no ideas because it's it's all <laughs> secondary research built on secondary research. Right? They don't. They're all just talking about. It's just footnotes on footnotes on footnotes, and nobody does any primary research. In fact, they don't leave their rooms. They're terrified to leave the room. They think it's kind of somehow disgraceful or, you know, déclassé to actually go anywhere and learn anything. So it's just all basically one lecture referring to something another lecturer said, who who himself is referring to another lecturer. So yeah, it's really devastating. Uh,
0: I mean, and in that respect, it is it is reminiscent of how academia works. How yeah. academia works to this to this day, um, to a to a certain extent. Um, to get now, I mean, because this podcast is is a ideas, yeah, to get yes. to this question, and it's something I think we spoke about a little bit when we were initially emailing, there's obviously not artificial intelligence in this story, in the you know ones and zeros code embedded in silicon in the way that we think artificial intelligence needs to be. But there is, I, I mean, there's this thing called the machine that runs everything it doesn't seem to have maybe what we would call consciousness if it does have consciousness we never we never hear from it but it is a a robot we could say an automation that i mean is intelligent in the sense that it performs the tasks that are basic to humanity it provides them food and light and water and it does this automatically and again in my in my expansive rubric of course this is artificial intelligence it is not how we thought ai would come to be it's probably not even it may not even be possible to create ai in this kind of like steampunk way a a series of pneumatic tubes that can repair and build i'm not sure if it is possible but without the you know without the turing type knowledge Forster comes up with a world that is automated.
1: Yeah. I I like the fact that he doesn't actually spend that much time speculating about the machine, like how the machine does what it does. He just describes what it does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very, at some point in the past, it was programmed to cater to your every needs and presumably it's also programmed to, to learn, you know, and to, you Know to, to learn to get to know each of its users and to improve itself and so and take care of itself and so forth because you, you get you do get the sense that there are no humans involved with it any longer, yeah. There's just a big rule book that they have about how to navigate it and how to, you know, how to ask it the right questions and press the right buttons and so forth as the as a user. Um, but what's so funny is that um, this book has become a Bible and people <laughs> need to worship it, and Vashti sort of kisses it three times every time. Before she asks the machine for something, and the people pray to the machine, and it's has become kind of a, a cargo cult around the machine. And that's what Forster is mostly interested in: is you know how we so easily allow things to get in the saddle and ride mankind. To quote, "Is that Emerson who said that?" Um, oh,
0: I should really, I, I, I should really know that, but I'm not sure. It sounds like Emerson. <laughs> Emerson, or Emerson. I was going to say it's it's that or Thoreau, but yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yes. Clearly, um if there are any humans involved anywhere with the machine, Bashi is not aware of them and and no one ever thinks about them or talks about them. And and if if something is going wrong with the machine, you might complain to kind of a committee who somehow intercedes with the machine or interfaces <laughs> with the machine in some way, but you're not directly talking to like customer service or you know or a program or engineer or anything like that.
0: And this is again in this in this uncanny way. I guess I need to briefly say, because I haven't talked too much about science fiction yet on this podcast, it is, you know, there's a sort of like naive belief that science fiction predicts the future, or tries to predict the future, and this is wrong. But there's, I think, this like equally naive belief that science fiction is only and always about the present, and this is also wrong. Science fiction is imagining what might happen if things go down certain ways. So it's predictive, but it's a sort of like if-then predictive. So Forster says, if you live in a world in which you put your faith in technology, and you value secondhand ideas over real experiences, and you prefer likes from someone a thousand miles away to walking in the grass, this is what you will get. And in that respect, since all of the uh, suggestions he made seem to have been the choices we have more or less made over the course of the past hundred years, it seems to me a pretty good prediction. The machine is, if not if not an AI in the like, hello, how can I help you sort of way? It's a set of algorithms, learning algorithms designed to satisfy the needs of humans who are incapable of reflecting on the idea that they might have any needs that cannot be met by the algorithm.
1: Yes. Very good way to put it. We also call this Amazon. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. And, uh, the the it really predicts Aldous Huxley. It, you know, it predates Huxley's you know Brave New World in the sense that uh, you know Orwell had a vision of a, a possible horrible horrific future where you don't get anything that you want. You just <laughs> the state decides what they want for you, and you have no say in anything. And Huxley much more correctly predicted a future in which you get everything that you want, and that's how they get you um just everything becomes easier and more automated and more convenient and you just slowly kind of give up all these freedoms without even realizing it because out of it's more convenient to give them up um i remember when i was a kid i grew up in a at least half the week i grew up in an evangelical household where there was a certain amount of fear on the part of my stepmother in particular about things like in the future you know we're you know, Revelation is somehow t- telling us that in the future we will have like barcodes tattooed on our hands. Mm. And, and that's and that's what the mark of the beast means in the Bible, things like that. Mm. And you realize that um, today, if someone said, hey, if you get a barcode tattooed on your hand, you can go through the supermarket without stopping at checkout. <laughs> everyone would be like, fuck, yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, <laughs> sounds great. And so, yeah, basically all these things that we were afraid were going to be forced on us, you know, at a certain point in time are now offer to us in the form of conveniences and we're the ones asking for them it's kind of an interesting uh the carrot instead of the stick
0: i think that's a good way of putting it but it's also spoken uh like someone who doesn't work in an amazon warehouse in other Mm -hmm. words i would say that um when you are working for for the average worker in this world who is not a knowledge worker um you you live in orwell's world where the Mm -hmm. machine is constantly telling you what to do and where to go and you're and you're desires are never gratified. It's especially ironic if you work at Amazon. And yeah. then when you leave the, the, the work you're in Huxley's world. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so in fact, work is big brother. And, but once you leave, you are now quote a consumer and you are living in Huxley's world. But in order for you to be a consumer, at least a substantial portion of the population has to spend a substantial amount of time as a as a worker and and you just sort of alternate back and forth between the Huxley mode and the Orwell mode unless you're a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and you don't have to deal with the Orwell part of the world um, which is you know which is one of the reasons why we've created such a screwed up society because there's a whole group of people who don't even understand what the world is like for the average worker and man when you tell this to first year students, they're just like, that can't be right.
1: Right. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. And I think that obviously the the society that Forster is describing is one that has um, gotten over that hump to the point where everything's automated. So they've gotten rid of the workers and they don't exist. So they've been done away with somehow. Exactly. Exactly. People people that are left are the the UNC professors.
0: That's all that's 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 all that's left. And this is a world that someone like maybe Edward Bellamy or you know, even someone mm-hmm. like Dean Roddenberry might think of as a good world where we're basically all on the holodeck all the time. Well, the holodeck, I don't know if Roddenberry created that because that comes later, but he might be running TNG at that time. Anyway, um, but Forster does not view that. This, no. this, this is not a well, utopia. He's
1: specifically yeah. responding to Wells Yes, um, and so Wells of course was like the the you know futurist of the era, and for decades and decades, his his ideas had great valence, um, and everyone sort of assumed that probably most of what he predicted was going to come true, and a lot of what he predicted did come true. But his book, uh, the his novel, the A Modern Utopia, about a kind of future administered social order, or, it's actually sort of in a parallel dimension, but it's supposed <laughs> to be sort of in our future somehow. And uh, and also when the sleeper wakes, which is from 1899, in which all these Londoners live in a multi-tiered underground society that's very automated and everyone's very happy. I think he responding to those two books in particular, and I think he was one of the first of. There was a lot of a lot of great science fiction comes out of critiquing those visions of Wells. Mm-hmm. His idea of this like beautiful, perfect utopia struck a lot of people as dystopian. <laughs> precisely because it, it did away with you know chance and you know nature and uh because you know he he was somewhat of a b- believer in eugenics and you know he wanted everything to be or, orga- organized and administrated and like you say it's similar to bellamy in that sense that all the sidewalks would roll up at night and yeah. you know nothing bad would ever happen to you anymore and that was very frightening to a lot of people and so a lot of great dystopian writing comes out of this sort of tradition of bashing wells and I think Forrester was one of the earliest and best um, people at, at doing that. But you think of like Woody Allen's Sleeper as another yeah. <laughs> a much later example of doing the same thing. Yeah, um, there's or Wally, of course. Oh yeah, absolutely. Comes out of this story, it feels like.
0: I agree. the The by and large world, I mean, how how wrong they got it. They thought they thought Walmart was the enemy, and it was actually Amazon. But that's really the only mistake they mm-hmm. made in Wally. But But uh, yeah, this idea that your, if we reach the point of perfect automation and we no longer need to enslave humans to produce the goods we want, and we don't need to enslave you know, artificial intelligence in the kind of Blade Runner sense that they are people who have merely been created and we can just have mindless algorithms do our work, that is in fact a, a nightmare for Forster. And I feel like for those of us who are, who are living in this world it it feels like a nightmare. And Forrester's vision of Forster's vision seems to me much more relevant to 2022 than someone like Philip K. Dick who is imagining a world in which we can create, you know, non-human persons. This mindless AI could very easily become our God, as it does in Forrester. Cargo Cult is a great example. It it gives us, it gives them what they need. So they they worship it, and I think we might be done with the cult of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Maybe not, but again, it's very reminiscent of the religion of of Jeff Bezos, at least as I remember it existing in 2012 or whatever.
1: Certainly, even if it's not attached to a particular individual, which always, you know, every god's going to have feet of clay. So it's dangerous (laughs) to have a cult, have a real human figurehead, a Zuckerberg or whoever, but. If the idea is generally just like engineering, let's say the culture of engineering, the Google, you know, model, the being iterative and moving fast and breaking things and putting things out in beta, you know what I mean? And testing them live, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that were, when they first started kind of bubbling out of the world of engineering into the mainstream back in the 90s and 2000s, I for one was bowled over and amazed and loved Mm -hmm. it. I I wish everything could be more like this, you know? It's kind of engineering culture and there are good things about it, but... You know, everything in moderation, right? We need to, someone needs to be in the driver's seat. Um, You need humans to be, to remain in charge and to make make moral decisions and not just, you know, again, it's not about the tech, it's not the technology is automatically bad. It's, you know, our use of it and the over solicitousness of the technology. And it's not that social media is necessarily bad, but it's how addictive it is and the ways that it's designed to be addictive. It's It's algorithmized
0: to be addictive. Yeah. Yeah, So I have to say, Josh, I'm completely embarrassed that you had to be the one to say Google because you're right this is this is Google i mean Google is first of all if someone deals with ai in their day-to-day basis and you know this the, the kind of ai that exists today google is the place where the ai is the best google google maps and gmail it's the place where the speech recognition is the place where the ai works it's the place where the ai is doing the most it's the place where the ai is least obviously commercialized. Hey, Google yeah. Maps is is free. You don't have to pay any money yeah. to use most of Google's yeah. features. It's the place it it is interacting with Google and the ease with which it, I mean, remember when they tried to digitize every book in the history of humanity? Yeah. Google yeah. is Ian Forster's the machine. It yeah. it really
1: yeah.
0: is. So I guess I'm glad we're doing this meeting on Zoom rather than Google Meet, but it's not that Zoom is any better. <laughs>
1: There's something else that Wells was really wanted. He wanted an internet. He, there was some book or essay that he wrote where he was, and it was actually kind of a program. He went around lecturing about it around the, around the world about how we needed to have some way of having all of knowledge gathered in one place and having yeah. everyone be able to access it from wherever they were. Um, yeah, and I think it, to bring, bring back your point about Amazon, you know, yeah, Google doesn't have yeah. a warehouse full of workers as far as we know. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not, they're not in our consciousness. In fact, they they have these campus where everyone strolls around playing ping pong and you know getting free popcorn or whatever. Yeah, exactly.
0: And that and that is the that's the vision to have everyone be a Google worker and Forrester, their views out as a nightmare. I mean, I know when they I think this was Apple, but as they're building these campuses, the idea is like, you know, no one wants to go to work. You have to force people to go to work. And it's like, oh, I've got a great idea. Just make work a really fun place to be, and again, it sounds like the world of Forsters the Machine, where just your needs are met. It's like a, it's like a casino. Your needs are met, so why would you ever leave? And you don't even have to give any money. You're just giving away data or productivity or something like that. Also, Josh, I don't know if you heard, but my my Pixel started talking when I said oh. Google enough times. Oh no. so, uh, I hope that got picked up. Uh, I hope that got picked up on the
1: yeah um yeah i used to work at a dot-com called tripod back in the 90s and I, I was 30 at the time which was ancient the ceo was you know 24 and everybody else was in their 20s and um and i was my wife got pregnant and we were having a baby which was shocking to everybody there because they were all just right out of college and i know this exactly what you're talking about and we didn't even make it that fantastic there at this place we were it was nice there's a ping pong table and everything but it wasn't like free salads all day long but people hung out there all the time this all day and all night there and that's how they socialized and that was what their idea of a good time was was being at work in which i was just old enough to have had other kinds of jobs and to think like no work (laughs) should always stop at five o'clock you should go home
0: yeah yeah okay there was there's one passage from this that i did that I did want to, to read as as we're heading towards the end because it just seems so delightful and perfect. Mm. Um so uh this is the the hero sort of the story, Kuno I think is his name. The, no,
1: the daughter the son of Vashti. Yeah. The
0: son of Vashti who's got this Barovian project of, of, you know, or Emersonian project of self, self-reliance. And he says,
1: he's kind of a hippie. He wants to like walk in the grass and yeah. smell the air and so forth. Yeah, yeah. See
0: the sun, that sort of thing. Although he can't really breathe the air because um, it's oh, too yeah, harsh yeah. for him. <laughs> yeah. Cannot you see, cannot all you lecturers see that it is we that are dying and that down here, the only thing that really lives is the machine. We created the machine to do our will but we cannot make our do we cannot make it do our will now it has robbed us of the sense of space and of the sense of touch it has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act it has paralyzed our bodies and our wills and now compels us to worship it the machine develops but not on our lines the machine proceeds but not to our goal we only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries and if it could work without us it would let us die.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean that gets right to the argument that we still have today that's still trying to bubble through to the mainstream, which is that every technology has a bias built into it, mm-hmm. right? And cars, the bias is you, sh- you can live farther away from work, and therefore commuting becomes possible, and suburbs appear, and things like that. Uh, so yeah, that's I, I think. I mean, obviously, it's obviously a brilliant, brilliant story, which is why I included it in, in the Voices from the Radium Age collection. I also want to point out, however, that Kuno is so extreme. You know what I mean? <laughs> Lately, anti-technology. He was sort of like a new romantic. He's like Thoreau, and Thoreau was yeah. sort of a silly person in some ways. And he, um, was. he was a suburbanite, right? Yeah. right? Uh, he lived in suburban Boston. He was not out in the wilderness. But, um, you know, I, I agree with Kuno more than Boshti. But what I, one thing I like, and I know we're not allowed to like Woody Allen anymore, but one thing I remember liking about Sleeper back when I was allowed to like Sleeper was that he makes fun of both sides in that. If you recall, um, there's this you know, high-tech society where all once every need is met and Woody Allen and Diane Keaton escape from it. And then she goes and joins the revolutionaries living in the woods and like <laughs> staying from ropes and wearing loincloths and stuff. And he's obviously... Well, you know, Woody Allen's being more dialectical and saying both sides have something wrong with them. We don't, we, we should get, have the best of both uh, if possible. And I think that, um, this maybe one, uh, you know, one thing that Forrester maybe gets a little bit wrong is that he sort of feels like it, it should all just be destroyed and people should just kind of live uh, on the grass wearing loincloths. He goes maybe too far in the other direction. Yeah. But I generally, generally sympathize with Kuno.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, It the story. I I don't want to spoil the end. I mean, the machine stops. That's the title of it, but there's, but it's how it stops and why and what happens is quite interesting. So I won't spoil that. If this were a novel, I think we would have a better sense of where, you know, Mm -hmm. you and I might diverge from Kuno within, Mm -hmm. within the world. He lives. I take Kuno's extreme position to be, to be very, admirable. Yeah. His, his views are more or less the same as Thoreau's, and Thoreau lived in a world that was much less mechanized than Kuno's. Yeah. I take Thoreau's views to have gone a little too far, um, but, yes. but I, I don't know.
1: There's an amazing scene, and this uh, this I don't think gives anything too much away either, where it really prefigures Terry Gilliam's movie Brazil, yes, which is another, another <laughs> uh, a brilliant Fiction about kind of the world of you know luxury and convenience, you know, developing and the, the machine overdeveloping and people—it's almost to the point where people are just about to be expelled from the machine in, in Brazil, right? Um, the machine has, has hardly any room left for people in it at that point. But there's a scene where Kuno does um, briefly escape to the surface of the planet, and these tendrils, these long, um, this mechanism that sort of just sort of keeps things in order comes and grabs them and pulls them back in and sort of kills somebody who who he encounters up there and uh, it's all very very Gilliam-esque. It's kind of an extraordinary thing that to be written in 1909.
0: Yeah, I mean that's as that's as good a place to end as any. This is an extraordinary thing to have been written in 1909 and by a man, Ian Forster, who again is as is as good a novelist as I mean is in the top class of novelists from literary accomplishment as can be. And for him to have, have gifted us with this mostly forgotten text, and for, for you and MIT Press to have brought it back, that thank you. I, I, I mean, I was teaching this a couple of years ago, uh, but I did now. Now I can you know now, now I I can more easily share the word about this amazing story and this amazing era. Thank you, Josh. Oh,
1: yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean Forster wrote this story between uh, when a uh, room room with a view in Howard Zand, which are, to my view, his two best pieces of writing. So he was really at the top of his game writing this. So it's really just, at every level, there's something great about this story. I mean, it's just written beautifully. The ideas are incredible and incredibly prescient and troubling and very, very, as you said, very germane to our present moment. Thank you so much for paying attention and I'm glad that you've been teaching it to your students and I hope you'll keep doing so.
0: Absolutely. Well, I am thrilled to have begun this new era of the show with Josh and The Machine Stops. I am struck with the irony that I'm sitting now in my office, not seeing any of you speaking into a machine, and then the file I create will be uploaded just like I'm putting a lecture out as Vashti did. And uh, I need your help, as I said, to raise the prominence of this podcast in the machine. So if you can tell a friend, share it on social media, or above all, give a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That helps so much. We'll be back with bits and bites and some more interviews in the future. Please believe in other minds.